house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Extraordinary lives. You and Ted, you understand each other in ways that other people can only dream about. I love you. Do you? We're not even two people. Even before we met, we were just these two halves. Walking around with big, gaping holes in us shaped like the other person. Gwyneth Paltrow and Daniel Craig. Sylvia. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast blowing magic dust into Tommy Lee Jones' eyes as if that man's face isn't ravaged enough by the march of time as it is. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be... (laughs) What? I said, what a bitch. (laughs) Jesus. His face is craggy. What do you want from me? Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, Chris, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy on the deep, deep crevices on Tommy Lee Jones' beautiful face. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It caught me off guard, and I hadn't read the joke. We can restart it. If no, no, no. We're keeping it. We're doing it live. We're keeping it all in. I love it. It's It's... We're losing each other up right now. It's good. We're at the end of a three podcast weekend, and we are watching the snooziest one. I woke up bright and early for this like truly blown nap of a movie. I kept being like, "Don't make a joke about putting your head in the oven. Don't make a joke about putting your head in an oven." But what was my recourse after watching Sylvia? Honest to God, I like. Okay, the thing is, like, yes, I don't like. I feel like if I haven't mentioned, head... by the way, that I'm their host, Joe Reed, and you are my co-host, Chris File, and hello, hi, Chris. Hi, guys. You know we're just going to get into it. We're, we're just going to jump into it. Through it. We're, we're tired. Um, but, no, to the thing of, like, you making a head in your oven joke, that would probably be less offensive than some of this movie's, like, portrayal of mental health. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. sure we'll get into it, but, like, it fully plain- paints this notorious writer as, like, a woman who killed herself... Like yes, she it details that she has like troubles uh, yes. with her mental health, but like in the specifics of how it led to her unfortunate suicide, it's all because like her husband cheats on her and yeah. he's more successful, and like that is the only way that it paints Sylvia Plath's mental health, and it's like I I was just so uncomfortable with it the whole time, and maybe we are far more sensitive to that now than we were 15 years ago, and maybe that's more symptomatic of the fact that this is just a very by the numbers biopic, very much so, yes, and like yeah. that's just like we an and we say that a lot, but that. like truly, this is this does not the color outside child. of any single line at no. all. I feel like I don't know any more about Sylvia Plath after watching that movie than I did going in, and I didn't know a ton. Well, I went back and read like the Wikipedia like of the movie, and I feel like the page, the movie's Wikipedia page, tells you more about her than it does in the movie. 
Yes, because it begins with an entire paragraph, and then the second paragraph goes at the beginning of the movie, and it's just like, what the fuck? Like, because <laughs> the movie doesn't even give you like a prologue of text; it gives you a little epilogue of text at the end, which right, which it's also is like... a little bit even more intriguing than the movie. The idea that like Ted Hughes never spoke about her yeah. until like he the day before he died, essentially, where he published, you know, a a book of of letters or something. But I think the title of the poetry book is something with letters but like oh but it was poems poems about poems all right so let's reorient ourselves we are of course talking about the 2003 movie sylvia because we are in the middle of uh, the middle of we are yeah right middle second of four is the second episode yeah second and a half we're in the midst of our mini series on the on the oscar buzz films of 2003 where we are talking about how the 03 movies was a particular year of kind of carnage for the predicted Oscar buzz movies. We're going to get into specifically Best Actress in this episode and how that category sort of blew up from what we expected it to be. And, and I think our favorite category every year. Yeah. And I think ultimately we'll talk about it. how that kind of blowing up of all of the big Oscar buzz movies that year kind of allowed for some big surprises. I know the winners in 03, I always think about I always think about 03 as more a more predictable year than it was because um Tim Robbins and Renée Zellweger and Charlize Theron sort of bulldozed their way through the season and won every single award you could win. It was you know, sweeps for everything except for best actor and of course best picture and best director also for Return of the King. But the nominations in 03 were hugely surprising in a Mm -hmm. lot of categories and i think that only happens when you know all the stuff that you were originally going to pencil in as automatic votes just were not available to voters for a variety of reasons whether they moved out of the season or they turned out to be you know kind of bombs and that's how you end up honestly that's how you end up with fernando mireles getting the shocker best director nomination for city of god a year removed from Getting it being a foreign nomination. language nominee. <laughs> yeah, that was. I always think about like what was the what's the most shocking Oscar nomination morning uh, in the major category. How many like, nomination. nominations City of God did? Which like was that even on anyone's radar? We might no, get into that more not. our next episode because that was a Miramax movie. Yes. Yeah. We'll definitely um, do that. But like but, that like, was definitely that is up there. But emblematic like also, of yeah, yeah, what we're talking about. But, like, Jaiman Hansu this year was also, you know, a, that surprising of a nomination in Supporting Actor. And Keisha Castle-Hughes jumping from a possible dark horse at Supporting Actress to landing in Best Actress, which we'll get into eventually. So, yeah, Sylvia. It's directed by a woman named Christine Jeffs, who the only other thing of note she's done in a film has been she directed the movie Sunshine Cleaning. With Emily Blunt and Amy Adams, and we talk like about it. talk about Oscar overdue playing sisters in that in that movie. Um, Could you imagine if Sunshine Sunshine Cleaning came out now? I know, we would but not people be would be able to handle it. But people would have been more disappointed by it because ultimately, Sunshine Cleaning, I think, is a is a slight movie that that I don't ever really think about, and yeah. I, I like think the it. expectations on it nice. would have been a lot. Yes, that it was not ever aiming to live up to. Right. So Sylvia, of course, written by John Brownlow, uh, starring 
Gwyneth Paltrow as Sylvia Plath, Daniel Craig as her husband, Ted Hughes, Blythe Danner, of course, her real-life mother, playing her on-screen mother, Jared Harris is also in this movie, Michael Gambon. It premiered without having gone to any festivals, Chris. You noted this before Mm -hmm. we started. Uh, October 17th, 2003. Sort of early fall for a movie that didn't do Toronto or any of the festivals. You would think sometimes when a movie skips all those fall festivals, you think, oh, they're going to try and sneak it out at the end of the year and maybe, you know... That it didn't even play London Film Festival, which it seemed like there was a certain degree of British collaboration in this movie, so it's surprising that it didn't even go to London. Like, I even pulled up the full Toronto lineup to be like, maybe this was in some weird sidebar or something. Like, maybe it was in their Discovery sidebar since it was a first-time feature director, and nope, it did not go. Yeah. Which is strange because, like, even if Focus Features wasn't, as confident as it seemed they were in promoting the movie, like with the actual movie, like why did they take it to no festival? Like right. this could have gotten a boost somehow, like right. at least financially. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, man. It's wild. So Chris, Sylvia, so much happens. <laughs> so I wonder if happens. you might try and grace us with a 60 second plot description. Absolutely. All right, let me set. I'm a little rusty at this. We will see how I do. Yeah, it's been a minute, right? Okay, so when you are ready, I will start the timer. I am ready. All right, Sylvia, 60-second plot description begins now. Okay, so we open on Sylvia Plath while she is attending Cambridge. She is trying to get her poems published in, like, a university manual, and it gets denied or like poorly reviewed by this um, other poet named Ted Hughes who uh, later Sylvia meets at a party and they start flirting and then they start fucking and then they are eventually married. Um, Ted Hughes played by Daniel Craig who is a brunette in this movie. That should never ever ever be allowed to happen again. Um, and 30 seconds. Eventually they get married they have a baby. Um, we find out that Sylvia has already had a suicide attempt that her um, family had like resuscitated her from uh, Ted begins to have an affair against Sylvia while she's having problem, problems getting published um, and eventually they separate while he impregnates his uh, mistress who is played by Amira Kassar, the mother in Call Me By Your Name. I was wondering um, if you would notice that, yes. Uh, yes, I did. And uh, eventually it just kind of goes worse from there. She publishes the... Um, Time's uh, up. Sorry, I didn't give you a 10-second warning. And then um, commits suicide. Sure does. Sure does. Publishes the bell jar, makes a half-assed pass at Jared Harris, who has no idea how to handle it. She doesn't even, like, they say that she makes a pass at him, and she really just, like, she's like, I want a lover. And he's like, oh, who's going to be your lover? And And she stares intensely at him for a thousand hours. She's like, wait, was that not obvious enough that I, like, have, like, that I meant you? It's like, what? First of all, I'm... I thought he was gay, maybe because I think most of Jared Harris's characters are gay. But oh, like, that's, that's actually kind of an interesting scene because then he confesses to her. Basically, he's like not into her, and right. it becomes right. clear with no words. But like he also says, he has "I to understand let her down you. Easy. Yeah. I've had a suicide attempt myself," but he can't say the words. So it's like the way they navigate that kind of connection is i think the single most interesting thing that happens in the movie yes um but everything else is just so bland and like 
drawn out and I don't know. Like there's stretches where like people just like say poetry, but I don't think that <laughs> yeah. really gets like sells the audience on like what it is like to be that particular kind of artist. Um, I also don't think it sells us too well on the romance between Gwen or between Sylvia and Ted. It just sort of like happens. if that sex scene was not in the movie, it would not really make sense why they're together. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It is a it is a it is a pretty good sex scene in terms of like communicating what it needs to communicate. But and despite Daniel Craig's just for men brunette hair, <laughs> it does feel like there should be like. A, a slick of it on the pillowcase or something like that, right? Like, I am not saying everybody has to be blonde. I, I I do not prescribe to such like limitations on beauty, but Daniel Craig has done this a few times, and every time I say no, just a flat no. I don't I I don't appreciate it. I wondered aloud to you yesterday whether this was the first movie that I was ever aware of Daniel Craig in, and then realized later that of course. This was the year after he was in Road to Perdition, playing the sort of black sheep son of Paul Newman's character, kind of a hothead, mm-hmm. and and that and he was got definitely... really good reviews for that movie too. Yeah. Like that was a breakout role, and that was <laughs> yes, another time absolutely. I remember just being like, no, yeah, you were not into that. That's it. what no. what just that movie didn't work for you or him specifically. Daniel Craig like has that very intense stare that he has, but like it can fall into like just being vacant very easily. Like uh-huh. in this movie and that movie. All right. I don't okay. know. I'm not fully sold on Daniel Craig sometimes. I don't know. I I mean, it's tough to be like what's your standout Daniel Craig performance? I do really like him as James Bond. I think he's was it's funny to think about what a controversial choice he was as James Bond simply right. because he was blonde. Like people were people are historically so Stupid. boxed in in their image of what James Bond can be, which is why Pierce Brosnan was perfect because Pierce Brosnan looked like he was looks like he was created in a lab to play James Bond one day. And so of course like Pierce Brosnan worked. And I think after that, everybody was like, oh, so let's like go back to the factory and find the next model. And Daniel Craig was super not that bulky and, you know, sort of potato-faced a little bit and blonde. And everybody was just like, no, smooth and svelte and, and you know, dark hair. It's very important. And martinis and, and Aston Martins is just like, okay, shut up. Like, and ultimately, I, I think the verdict is out on the... the um, you know, the trend of these later James Bond movies and becoming sort of these grim delves into his past, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah, but I'm over it. I think Skyfall's a fantastically good movie. And I think Casino Royale is an incredibly fun James Bond movie for being the first of the ones who sort of put us down this path. I think Spectre is bad. So it's like, you know, it's a mixed bag for me, but I think ultimately there's some really good stuff in there. I'm more into, like, Daniel Craig now that he kind of gets to be a weirdo. Like, I loved Logan Lucky, and I loved him in Logan Lucky. Mm, yeah. Um, Playing, essentially, the Jason Statham in Spy of Logan Lucky? Yes. Like, that's yes. the same kind of role. Yeah. In Which Car, Sir A. Ted. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's probably a, an issue with this movie about Sylvia Plath starring Gwyneth Paltrow that we started our conversation yeah. talking about Mr. Rachel Weiss 
Yes. Um, well, originally the movie was supposed to be called Sylvia and Ted. Ted and Sylvia? Sylvia uh, and Ted. Oh. One but of it's two. not really any of his... I, no, I mean, I it's not. I get why not... they changed the title, for sure. But... But do we learn as much about that much more about Sylvia than we do about Ted? I don't know if that's true. It's just we spend more time with her. Right. It's the mo- like we talk about these type of it's to the point where talking about the cliche biopic is itself a cliche, but like this yes. is this is the beginning of that snake chasing its own tail. This is this the is beginning. the head of that snake. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. And well, so because it's interesting to think of from this vantage point. I sometimes imagine just like, what were any of us thinking? That this tiny little depressing movie about a poet who kills herself, directed by an unproven, you know, thus far unknown director, from a, you know, I mean, Focus was still, you know, a major boutique studio, but essentially a boutique studio. And... I just don't understand, you know, you, you you imagine what was anybody thinking that this was going to be a contender, but then you go and place yourself back in early 2003 and you think, oh, okay, well, Iris did very well, won an Academy mm. Award for Jim Broadbent, got nominations for Judy Dench and Kate Winslet. Frida was not at all far removed from Gwyneth Paltrow's Oscar win. Right. Frida did very well playing another sort of like tortured artist, right? Uh, Salma Hayek gets the gets the Best Actress nomination, and also it got like score and, you know, a lot more attention song. than you would have thought. It got a song nomination. Yes, it got a song nomination, too. And then The Hours, of course, which I think boiling The Hours down to a tortured writer movie is way oversimplifying it, mm-hmm. but... Nicole Kidman had just won for playing a suicidal author. So, like, I don't think it was so out of the ordinary to sort of draw the line, continue that line out to Sylvia. It just, it's a it's a testament to the fact that, like, good on paper doesn't always happen. And yeah. I think that's I mean, a big I don't think we're podcast. even all that far removed from the type of good on paper predictive decisions that we made for like a movie like this. Like, I think if this was the same project today, we would probably be making those calls. If you this think movie so? could even exist today. Oh, absolutely. So who's the equivalent? So like who would have been um, about five years out from best actress. So that puts us at Brie Larson. Sure. Okay. So Brie Larson, if she doesn't play um, Captain Marvel, if she instead plays, I don't know. I'm bad with with you know literary references, but <laughs> if if Brie Larson were in a Sylvia Plath biopic, you know what I mean? If she was yeah. Emily Dickinson, let's you know take that away from Cynthia Nixon for a second. I don't know. And Molly Someone. Shannon, or like even like I know there's a Gloria Steinem biopic out there, sort of happening or whatever. Just like you know, I don't know if I would look at that and be like, yes, that definitely. I would, I would be, I would probably be more maybe a little more it. hesitant. But it would like when you're making these early predictive long lists, like we still make these kind of decisions. Oh sure, it would definitely like be on a long of, list. Yeah. That's true. That's I mean, you know, yes. But yeah. like, I don't know. We d- we dug up some early predictions from the people who did early predictions, and like when yeah. Paltrow shows up there. But like when. 
Hmm. To keep someone in that long of a conversation until we see a movie, like I, I wonder how much things have changed in that like they have become so more reliant on festival season because this movie skipped that and then it's like the second people saw it, it you know yeah. sank like a stone. Yeah, I want to so get I into wonder that. If there is a certain evolution there. I want to get into that when we talk about best actress, but just to sort of clear away the Sylvia specific discussion. Um, on the subject of Gwyneth, because her Oscar, we talk about like a post Oscar backlash that always seems to happen to actresses and very rarely seems to happen to actors. Although, weirdly, I feel like Eddie Redmayne is in the midst of one right now in a oh, way that yeah. like actors never really get, but like he's definitely in it. And I guess maybe Jupiter Ascending will do that for you. But, um, when I first read about his movie coming out this year, The Aeronauts, it fully sounds like a joke. Oh, him, him and Felicity in, Jones in a hot air balloon? Yeah. In a hot air balloon movie. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it sounds like a joke. It does. It does. Um, we'll see. Maybe it'll be great. So, but Gwyneth Paltrow has, I think, has spoken ab- about it. And I think this is one of the instances where, like, it's most concrete. The, uh, the backlash that happens to Gwyneth Paltrow after she wins the Oscar for 1998's Shakespeare in Love. She's the ingenue. She's the favorite daughter of Hollywood. She is, of course, Harvey Weinstein's handpicked actress, which has its own, you know, even at the time, had its own considerations. Right. But, and now we look at it, you know, in a completely different light. But back then it was just sort of like, the idea was that she had had all of this sort of handed to her on a platter. And the backlash against that was pretty significant. And she's talked about that and how it makes her sort of look back on that Oscar win in a different way. And I'm sure also like having Harvey wrapped up in it also contributes to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. But in 2003, I don't think we were quite out of that backlash either. I don't know what brought us out of it, but like no, we weren't anything, out of it yet. I mean, I think she got a little more street cred from the Royal Tenenbaums. Yes. Um, but like largely she was not kind of perceived. Well, and I guess some of that is she tried to go a little bit more towards the mainstream with the exception of, like, Talented Mr. Ripley because you have things like Shallow Hal yes. and View from the Top. And, it's yes. like, we never really knew Gwyneth Paltrow as a comedic actress and those were the type of roles she was getting. Did not go well. Right. It was not what we wanted her to be doing. And... And also, if you were going to be sort of rebellious with your acting choices, don't be rebellious for Shallow Hal. Do you know what I mean? Like, don't be rebellious for, you know, View from the Top. So, yeah, we were definitely not in a place. But, like, this was, I think, the beginning of Gwyneth being like, all right, I'm going to pivot back to... I mean, pivot back to Oscar bait, although I don't think that was probably not, like, the way she had thought of it, thought of it in her head, her head. But, like, this was back to, all right, Sylvia happened this year, and then Proof, I want to say, was the next year? Uh, technically speaking, I think it was supposed to be the next year, but Proof was delayed by, was I think, over a year. Right. Sky Captain happened in the wake of Sylvia. Infamous, which was the non-Capote Capote that ended up coming out in... 
06. Right. Running with Scissors, which she doesn't really have a big role in. Although, weirdly, that was the movie. pretty good. That was also the movie that sort of began her professional relationship with Ryan Murphy, which is interesting Mm -hmm. because she still will sort of like, that's why she showed up on, on Glee and won an Emmy, which is so funny always to me. But, like, all of these movies we're talking about, we're also talking about a lot of bombs. And, like, that impacts the way that people are perceived. It's, like, that's another thing that's, like, a snake eating its tail is, like, people don't like a certain performer. They don't see their movies, but then they have all these bombs. And it's, like, you get a certain association. I have a theory. I think we started to come back around on Gwyneth. I think we had to sort of endure the speed bump that was the the launch of Goop, we had to sort of all figure out how we were going to make peace with the fact that we live in a world where Goop exists and whether we were going to be sort of amused by it or enraged by it or whatever. And I think once we got to the point where we were just going to be like, yes, Goop exists. This is, you know, what she has decided to do with her brand. Fine. Goop and... is her best performance. It is high <laughs> yeah. performance art. Yes. It is not real. It I will is... never forget, because I subscribe to the Goop newsletter, not to buy anything, but just to read it every every week or whatever, month, whenever it came out. And early on, she would tell these, like, stories. She still might. I don't know. I don't read the Goop newsletter anymore. But she was telling the story of this dinner party she had, and she mentioned that my friends uh, Katie Lee and William Joel came over. Katie Lee Joel and her husband William, that's how she put it. Katie Lee Joel was, of course, the host of Top Chef in its first season before they brought on (laughs) Padma Lakshmi, but famously was the wife of Billy Joel. And so when Gwyneth Paltrow (laughs) said, my friend Katie Lee Joel came over with her husband William, it took me a second because your brain has to, like filter through but like it's the only it's you know katie lee joel for two things you know for top chef season one and you know she's married to billy joel and so i remember being at my desk at work i was still at abc at the time and i like froze in place and my my friend and co-worker at the time uh mindy she was in the office next to me but it wasn't a cubicle it was like a full office so like my voice had to like travel out the front you know the door of my office and around or whatever but I was just like, Mindy, I was just like, read your Goop newsletter right now. And I just waited for her to get to the point. And she just like burst out. And it was the funniest goddamn thing I've ever done in my entire I refuse life. to believe that it is anything but performance art. And now I always think of him as William Joel now. Every time. Like, Piano Man comes on, it's like, oh, William Joel. So I think it was the combination His of... two first names. Yeah, the combination of people finding a way to sort of, like, backhandedly appreciate Goop. I think her performance in Iron Man as Pepper is incredibly endearing. Even if you're not really into the the Avengers movies and the Marvel movies, I think she's really, really likable in those Iron Man movies. And I think the third prong of this, and I may sound crazy, but her in Contagion... Dying in Contagion and her, like, face of death being the poster for Contagion, (laughs) I think honestly allowed a lot of people to purge their really bad feelings about her, where they were just like, look, 
she's gone through it. And this character that she plays has gone through it in this movie. I'm looking at literally just like Gwyneth Paltrow's <laughs> dead face. How can I hold on to these reserves of hate for this woman? She's clearly like putting it all out on the line. And like there, I've seen it. I've seen the end of Gwyneth Paltrow and it did not bring me joy. And honestly, why don't I just let this go? So. Oh yes. God. She is. Re- I mean, like it's literally just a character that exists to die. But, like, the yeah. physical work that she does in that character's death is really astounding. Yeah. Um, and terrifying. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right. That is kind of the turnaround time. And that, like, not just goop, but, like, the turnaround time of her essentially doing these bit roles now. Whereas, like, I think she was one of those cases where it's, like, an actress wins an Oscar and people suddenly don't know what to do with them but they feel like they have to have things that equate to what they think that the oscar means so it's like she's getting all of these lead roles in mainstream stuff or like romantic dramas like bounce and it's like maybe that's not what she's actually well suited to right like i think iron man and like shakespeare and love are as close to like a mainstream sensibility that she is suited for but like i think she's an actress that should have always been playing like weird stuff yeah you know and like quirky things like except for mordecai we don't mean mordecai Mordecai. but isn't she just like a pretty lady in mordecai she's a pair of raised eyebrows in mordecai where like every single thing mordecai does and she's just like (sighs) and yet she's still like romantically sort of involved with him i don't fully get it but I don't fully get Mordecai, so there we go. Should we move on? Should we move on from from Gwyneth, or was there anything else we wanted to mention about her? Uh, No, no, just the thing of, like, when I think particularly actresses are in those kind of positions and, like, they're in roles that maybe are not right for them and it mounts to this thing of, like, like you mentioned, people being mean to them. We just, I think there needs to be a little bit more sensitivity towards, like, well, they're just not playing the roles that's right for them. Sure, yeah, I think that's true. I don't know. And I think that's the case for Gwyneth. And yeah. I, I don't know if she's really all that into, like, finding the roles that are right for her anymore. Right. It seems like goop is the thing. But, like, are we right. going to complain? that goop is the thing right so this was early focus features this was i think in 2002 was when they transitioned to becoming focus features am i wrong yes because their first movie was possession also starring gwyneth Paltrow. right the neely butte movie possession and I'll, and far from heaven i feel like was a was a movie at around the transition time to yes to focus so this was probably their first full year doing an oscar campaign you know, or whatever, doing, supporting their movies as focus mm-hmm. features for the first year. And their slate is very interesting. And I remember, even from this stage, I remember being like, all right, I am going to, you know, I was like airplane emoji to focus features movies, where it was like, <laughs> I remember seeing The Shape of Things in theaters. This was also Neil Butte. This was Rachel Weiss and Paul Rudd. And it's based on a Neil Butte play. And you can tell because yeah. it's... It's not just like that it's stagey in its production. It's that it's mean like a play is mean. You know how sometimes where you see... I always think of this also with movies that end very darkly and abruptly. And I'm like, oh, this was based on a short story. Because short stories tend to end... Viciously. Viciously and quickly and definitively. And I was just like, ah, that's a short story. And so I think I can sometimes 
call out something as being based on a play when like it's obviously very dialogue but it's also very like yeah harsh you know it's that sort of you know david mamet thing where it's just like, it doesn't oh my God. have that like polishing from scene to scene to make it more palatable or like... right movies i think are created in a way that you want your audience to love you and i think plays are created in ways where it's just like we've got you here we you know the 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 fact that the actors are in the room with you is enough to make you love it so now yeah. we can make the actors say really awful things to each other and rachel vice's character in shape of things is vicious and yeah it's a bit of a mousetrap of a play and a movie and like i it's neil abute so people can have like certain feelings about it but like i think rachel vice is a smart enough performer to make that into something that's not very offensive that's not offensive in a way that it could be um She's really good in that movie, too. She'd be close to my best actress ballot this if year. If that movie happened after Constant Gardener, I think would have gotten a lot more attention. Because I think at this yeah. point, we were still like, what? what is Rachel Weiss as a as an actress, as an entity? And I think she... we were still like, she was still like the girl from the Mummy movies. Yeah, I was going to say, she is a librarian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a great line reading. Exactly. So other focus movies this year, there was Swimming Pool, which was... Wait, remind me who directed Swimming Sex Pool. Sex and Murder in a Pool. Francois Ozon. Right, Francois Ozon. And I remember even for that being such a like very obviously sexy foreign movie, I remember they promoted that a little bit more than the average movie of its type. So I remember being like, oh, I got to see Swimming Pool. It helped that I think at least most of it is in English, if I remember correctly. That's but probably like, true. yes, they fundamentally sold that movie on like sexy naked lady by a pool. Yes, totally. Um, and then their big movie for 2003 that I think they were putting, I think Sylvia was one of them. I think if you would talk to anybody and being like, what are the big focus movies in 2003? They would have said Sylvia and 21 Grams. And 21 Grams was the one that had the possibility of being a best picture movie because it was, you know, sweeping in scope and it was about tragedy and it was Sean Penn and Naomi Watts, and Benicio Del Toro, and... It was Inuritu who was on the rise because he already had his foreign language nominee with Morris Peros, exactly. and this was an English-language movie. Yes, and then lurking towards the fall end of the spectrum for Focus was a follow-up to Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides called Lost in Translation, and... It's not that nobody saw this movie coming, because as I mentioned in our table setting episode for 2003, Dave Carger did mention Lost in Translation in his fall preview column for EW, and we're going to talk in a second about our friend Nathaniel Rogers at the Film Experience, and he definitely, even in his like April predictions, was just like, keep an eye on Lost in Translation. I don't think he had predicted it, but he was like, Sofia Coppola doing a follow-up to... Virgin Suicides. Virgin Suicides was very well received, even though it didn't get awards attention. It it was definitely like that good first step where it's just like keep an eye on this director. Mm-hmm. And so, ultimately, you know, hindsight being the thing that it is, ultimately, Lost in Translation was the big focus feature success story of that year. And I think at some point they wisely made the decision that like we're dropping Sylvia like a hot potato. We're gonna pivot off of 21 grams as a best picture contender and really focus just on getting some acting nominations from it and lost in translation is going to be our big contender because that's where the narrative was that's where the critics were talking about that's where 
you know, that was the good story. And the Bill the Murray movie. story is yeah. like its own thing as well. It helped that it was the best movie on their slate by a good margin that year. Oh, so. absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about the best actress field specifically in 2003, because that I think is of all the acting categories that year, it's the one that's the most emblematic of the way that year moved Oscar buzz wise. Mm-hmm. Where if you look at the beginning of the year and who was predicted a year out or even a half a year out, because we were able to thank God for the Wayback Machine. If you don't know about the Wayback Machine, where you can like it goes and scours the old internet for like old vestiges of web pages that are no longer there, and we managed to go dig into, like we said, our friend Nathaniel Rogers, who runs the filmexperience.net and continues to do so and has since. I started following the Oscars in like uh, 2000, I want to say, is when mm-hmm. I first discovered the film experience. Myself as well. And Oscar Watch then, which is also, which is now Awards Daily, which is Sasha Stone's site, which at the time, Sasha never did year ahead predictions. I remember that specifically, that site was very much focused on, we'll put them in our predictions list once their movie opens. I think Ann Thompson mm-hmm. still does something like that now with IndieWire. I mean, there's a certain, obviously based on what we discuss here, like there's a certain wisdom to doing so. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I like, I appreciate the people who do the, you know, full on caution to the wind year in advance predictions, because those are the most exciting to me, because then it's just like, wow, we're, you know, we're really taking stabs in the dark. And so. And it's much more normal for us to do that now. Yeah. Like widely just on Twitter or whatever. Right. Than it was at this time. Like we were still niche at the time. So Sasha wasn't doing year ahead predictions, but she, at that point in time, Chris Tapley, who had done a website called Oscar Central up until then, had moved over to Oscar Watch and was doing a column there. And in his column, he did predictions around midsummer. And so I want to sort of delve into those two. We were able to dig those two up. And I think it's. It's not to, you know, do a report card on either Nathaniel or Chris and how well they did because, you know, again, it shots in the It does definitely dark. set the table for what specifically this race was expected to look like. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So Nathaniel's predictions uh, in April were Jennifer Connelly, House of Sand and Fog, Nicole Kidman, Cold Mountain, Helen Mirren for a movie called The Clearing that I don't think I ever ended up seeing. It has Robert Redford in it. Okay, I don't know if I ever ended up seeing that movie. Who directed? Is think that it bombed? Is that a Taylor Hackford directed movie? I will look that up, but Thank I you. don't think so. All right. Uh, and then Meg Ryan for In the Cut, the Jane Campion movie In the Cut, and then Samantha Morton for In America, which is the one that ultimately ends up being correct, although in such a roundabout way, because the story of In America and Samantha Morton and Jaiman Hansu is. They were on a lot of very, very early 2003 predictions. And then the movie really went quiet and its reception was pretty muted. And I think they dropped off of, they they weren't recognized by, I want to say the Globes or SAG at all. And everybody figured that movie was 
ignored and left for dead. And well, so they, the thing about In America, too, is that it debuted at the 2002 Toronto <laughs> Right, Festival. and then came back again the next year, also at Toronto. Yeah, it went to both years of the festival. Right. So it had been around for a while, and I think people had sort of realized, that oh, I guess people just like didn't catch on with this movie. And then it turned out Oscar voters did. So that, again, managed to be one of the big surprises of Oscar morning, even though it was a movie that had been on people's predictions like a full year beforehand. Yeah. Chris Tapley's... And part of the reason why it stuck around is because so much died and like that was yes. just the movie that everybody saw. So Tapley's uh, predictions, and he made his in Midsummer, as I said, were pretty similar. He had Jennifer Connelly, he had Nicole Kidman, he had Meg Ryan, but then he had Gwyneth Paltrow for Sylvia, the movie we're talking about, and then his one correct one was Naomi Watts for 21 Grams, which was another, I don't think that one had ever really dropped off of the radar, but it really felt like Naomi Watts held on to that nomination by the tips of her fingernails, that, you know... That was... She was at least the safe third place because, like, that's a movie that was showing up elsewhere for, like, Benicio Del Toro. Sean Penn was still yes. getting nominations because it was, like, shared with Mystic River. It weirdly reminds me of her nomination for The Impossible, which felt the same thing of, like, mm-hmm. she was on long lists the whole year and she never really dropped out of the predictions. But the movie was, was received sort of uh, not indifferently, but divisively. And mm-hmm. so... There was a lot of question as to whether Oscar voters would end up liking it. And ultimately, in both of those cases, they did. Although I'm still waiting for Naomi to get a nomination for a movie that everybody thinks she's great in. Like, everybody agrees she's great in and everybody agrees is great. I think she's really good in both of those movies, especially The Impossible. But both of those movies have enough problems. Both of them, weirdly for being very manipulative movies, I think, in yeah. different directions. She's and definitely the best thi- best or one of the best thing about both of those movies. Yeah. Tom Holland, though, that was the big discovery of Tom Holland in The Impossible. Real good in that movie. He's, real, He's that, probably the best performance in that movie. The scene where he finds his siblings and his dad uh, at the one, like, shelter or wherever, and he comes, like, running to them is so, I mean, just, like, burst into tears with that movie. So, yeah, so that's sort of where ev- the predictions had the landscape at the time. And there were people were talking about possibly Evan Rachel Wood, which 13 was a Sundance movie, right? Yes. So the big Sundance. And then it was released in the sensation. Summer. Right. So people thought, you know, outside chance Evan Rachel Wood could get this nomination. Whale Rider ended up putting Keisha Castle Hughes on these, like, long shot predictions. But as we said, at some point... They decided they were going to campaign her as supporting, even though she's the main and only real like <laughs> star character of the movie. And then again, Uma Thurman was was considered an outside shot for Kill Bill. Conspicuously absent from all of this were who ended up being the two front runners for the award, which were Charlize Theron and Diane Keaton, who didn't really enter the conversation until the early fall. And then I think once Keaton was always there in that, like something's got to give was always on the release schedule and it was always going to be pretty big because it was, you know, Diane Keaton, Jack Nicholson. It was a Nancy Myers follow up Mm -hmm. to what women want, which was such a big hit. And 
but I and think... I think something's got to give too when people were first considering it because you even read through it and you made this observation to me in the EW Fall preview is that it was the conversation around it centered almost entirely around Jack Nicholson. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So exactly. like maybe there's a part of like her trajectory at least beginning that it was kind of a surprise because we thought that it was his movie and it ends up being more of hers. I remember there being, I remember there being like a moment where I think like everybody at the same time, and maybe it was when the trailer came out. I don't know where everybody at the same time, or maybe like it just very, very advanced reviews. And you're just like, Oh, this is, you know, Oscar winner, beloved Hollywood legend, Diane Keaton in a movie about like, that it seems to be all about this woman sort of like trying to start over and, if she's great in it, she's obviously going to be a huge contender. And mm-hmm. her performance was such a natural contrast to Charlize Theron's performance, which was all about transformation and uh, sort of darkness and murder and sort of, you know, the seedy underbelly. A of, real person. Right, a real person. Right. So, like, the contrast between the two was pretty irresistible. And ultimately, Theron steamrolls. And I think probably... I mean, I can't take issue with any of that because she's phenomenal in Monster. Like, there's no... I'm not going to in any way begrudge that. But I think mm-hmm. it's it's interesting that both of those performances ended up being the top two. So again, what's the story of 2003? It's big Oscar buzz like Jennifer Connelly and House of Sand and Fog, like Cold Mountain, like In the Cut, like Sylvia, sort of fall away. And what's left is something I think really kind of fresh and exciting for an Oscar race, which was yes, Charlie's and Diane Keaton. Who would have thought? Some of that, though, I think, because particularly this happens with Jennifer Connelly and Nicole Kidman, is that those were predicted Best Picture yes um, contenders, and like when those fell out, like their actresses fall with them i remember the whole cold mountain thing and of course like we'll be talking about cold mountain probably every episode yeah of our mini series it's like so much of it felt like on her shoulders when those nominations didn't happen yeah like it was like oh poor nicole kidman she couldn't steer this movie when it's right. never her movie to begin with that's true i always remember that about that movie. um anyway um Okay, so we talked briefly about this before we were recording with Charlize Theron, because my memory served that it was like that first set photo of her in full Eileen Warnos makeup came earlier in the year. And this might have even been the time where it's like you could still get Oscar predictions on Entertainment Tonight, Um, because I also remember like a TV reel and maybe it was like E or something and it being like either at the tail end of the previous year's Oscar year or, like, at the very beginning of 2003. I just remember there being a lot of skepticism about whether that was going to be good. I think I, I think mm-hmm. if only if all you had to go by was this still of Charlize looking, frankly... Not like Charlize Theron. Right, not like herself. I think... A, we were maybe not so tuned into the fact that, like, transformation equals profit in this industry. Right. But also, I think there's... It reminded me a little bit of I, Tanya before anybody saw I, Tanya, where you looked at that and you're just like, 50-50, this is trash. And a lot of people actually thought it was trash after they didn't see it. <laughs> but yeah. I think 50-50, if not, you know, the odds maybe even being a little worse, that Monster was going to be trash. And... 
there was not a whole like Charlize wasn't bringing with her any pedigree at that point. She had been no, in Bagger It's Vance, not even like a terrible. good comparison to Gwyneth Paltrow who did have like tiptoeing up to prestige or at least was like working with prestigious like people right. at the time like it was the same year of like that bomb a perfect murder but it's like she's working with michael douglas Charlize theron had like the devil's advocate but like that movie was seen as trash and like, but even the oscar buzz the oscar bait that she was in were like cider house rules had got a backlash after and she certainly wasn't the performer that Awards. She was never wrapped up in the Cider House Rules narrative either. Right. And then Bagger Vance was a disaster. And so you're right. Then it was stuff like Devil's Advocate and was Reindeer Games before this or was that after? I guess I shouldn't say that she wasn't involved in like prestigious things. It's just like, like I mentioned with Cider House Rules, she felt so excluded from the narrative of those. Like, yes. Of like what people loved about those things. Right. I just remember there being a lot of there was a barrier to taking her seriously, which ultimately ended right. up being a beneficial part of her narrative, actually, because then it was oh, like, totally. who knew that she had this in her? And that was irresistible, I think. And I think some of that, too, is like and part of like what the surprise was with Monster is like a lot of the role she was even playing in those things was just like. Again, she's just playing a pretty lady. Right. So, I mean, I would argue she's really good in The Devil's Advocate. She's really good in The Devil's Advocate. She's really good in The Yards, actually. But, like, The Italian Job and Curse of the Jade Scorpion and Sweet November, for shit's sake, and mm-hmm. Men of Honor and Ranger Games. At what Ranger Games was 2000. Mm-hmm. Astronaut's Wife. It's just like, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot in that lead-up to make us think, oh, automatically, like even, I guess Mar- I I will I will stand by that. Like Margot Robbie and I Tanya was similar. Like people had liked her and stuff. I thought she was very good in uh, that movie mm. Z for Zechariah that nobody saw. Yeah, she's but, great in that movie. A lot of people really loved her in Wolf of Wall Street. But I think when you look at I Tanya on paper and even in like a still, you're just like, oh, this could be trashy, cheesy, terrible. I think, I mean, another thing I would say about Charlize Theron that makes her, like, we should have known at the time is, like, you look at those movies that we just mentioned, and it's like, she had worked with quite a few influential and powerful people. So it's like, she'd worked with everybody, and if she has a good relationship with everybody, they're going to want to see her succeed. So it's like, the path is already clear for you. Yes. Like... Is obviously a very different thing, but that's why like Octavia Spencer was always going to win because it's like she had worked with everyone and everyone right. loved her. Right. And it's like, I think that's something we underestimate with people's Oscar chances. I think that's true. Ultimately, it's a really interesting lineup as it ended up shaking out, which was Charlize, Diane Keaton, Keisha Castle-Hughes, Samantha Morton, and Naomi Watts. I think... I think that's a real interesting five. I don't know. What do you think of the the other three in in broad broad assessment? Well, I'm well on the record about my thoughts about In America, but I do love Samantha Morton. Yeah. Um, 
21 grams, I remember being like the dumb teenager that thought like, this is intense, so it's great. But like watching it again, I think I watched it again in college and I was like, oh, this movie is fundamentally terrible. This is just like screaming, sobbing people. Right. Um, So I don't know how I feel about Naomi Watts. Um, Whale Rider, I still have to see. Um, I will see by the time that we close out this series. Um, What's interesting to me is that if the movie was just a little better, it's very easy to see a recent winner in a prestige project in an uncompetitive year like Gwyneth Paltrow and Sylvia making this lineup. That's fair. One actress who we I didn't mention at all who we should probably give a little bit of a moment to because it was such an... Like, there were so many angles to her story that year was Scarlett Johansson, who... Mm-hmm. is the lead in Lost in Translation, even though they decided to to campaign her as supporting, in part because they wanted to, you know, hand that movie over to Bill Murray, who was their Well, and they also chance. wanted to not compete with The Girl with the Pearl Earring, right. which well, is was a just about bad movie. Oh, you don't like Girl with the Pearl Earring? I thought it was okay. No. I thought it was pretty. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty. But But so ultimately, she ends up getting campaigned for both. I think a little bit more vociferously, she gets campaigned for A Girl with a Pearl Earring. I'm pretty sure she got a Globe nomination for that. Uh, Yes. Right? Yes, she did. Yes. So I think that was another, she was another name who was sort of in people's predictions up until the nominations came out. And I think ultimately she just ended up splitting her vote in too many places, which I think is too bad because I think Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation is a performance that now that we are 16 years removed from, holy shit, we're 16 years removed from Lost in Translation. (laughs) We're so fucking old. Um, Now that we're that far removed from it, it seems dumb that she wasn't nominated for that movie, for that performance. Right. It being a Best Picture nominee, it being so well received, and she's so good in it, and so I much of that movie she is just split her votes. Well, that's yeah, no, sure, but like in with all this hindsight, what do we care about? You know what I mean? I think it just in terms of right. like, you know, global justice, like and obviously justice. supporting actress was much more locked down than leading actress was. Right, right. Where you had um, Renee Zellweger wasn't going anywhere. And Marsha Gay Harden wasn't going anywhere. And Holly Hunter wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, they just kept showing up everywhere. I mean, probably the fifth slot was Patricia Clarkson, who got in there probably because she was so beloved that year. Because she she got in for the wrong movie. Competing with herself. Yeah, she got in for the wrong movie, too. That's the thing. Patricia Clarkson should have been nominated for The Station Agent. And it's silly that that happened that way as well. But yeah, I think ultimately, if I think if Hollywood and the Oscar voters had it to do over again, they would have put Scarlett in there and probably left out Naomi. I don't know. Like, which of those? What's the most forgettable of those five? Samantha Morton, I guess. I mean, I don't think it would be forgettable. I think because of the surprise category swap from what she was campaigned, I think it would probably be more likely that Keisha. Keisha Castle Hughes was the one that would drop out for Scarlett Johansson. That's very possible. But again, you're talking about two two performances that obviously had people voting for them in both categories. Right. Right, exactly. So, yeah, it was a very volatile category up until the men- the minute the nominations were announced and I really liked that. It's I wish, you know, 
we want that for all categories actually just that the precursors are all over the map and we can't quite figure it out and i would really like to like of course we always want to see what the numbers were that we will never know but yeah. like it would be really curious to see how close uma thurman was because i bet mm. she's number six. Oh, that's interesting very possible. i bet she's six over scarlett johansson very possible yeah so Nicole would have been eighth? Like, how far down that list is Nicole Kidman? I mean, the thing is, that movie never serves Nicole Kidman. No, it was like it the second I saw that movie, I was like, she's not getting nominated. Right. This is not in right. any way right. her movie. Um, and, like, people just kind of hung on to it. I doubt that she was even that close. Yeah. Well, Who wasn't close was Gwyneth Paltrow for Sylvia because the movie died. <laughs> yeah, uh, it it made no money. It made one point three million dollars. It got a thirty seven. It stands right now as a thirty seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Although one thing I I made note of is a lot of the big big time critics had it at least like a mixed positive. Roger Ebert mm-hmm. is uh, on Rotten Tomatoes as a fresh, which again like again it sounds stupid to just you know, be like, such and such was fresh and such and such was not, and the reviews are pretty mixed. But, like, they weren't slamming it. Ebert... But if they're mostly mixed negative, that's the problem with Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. It looks way worse than it probably, the span of the reviews are. Right. That's why I prefer Metacritic. Um, but Ebert kind of liked it, Gleiberman kind of liked it, Kenneth Turan kind of liked it, A.O. Scott, Wesley Morris... So there were people sticking up for it, although I thought it was really funny that the harshest pan that i read for it came from old pushover peter travers at yeah. rolling stone which i want everything's I, a sensation for peter travers that's true it's the best or the worst and sensation. i uh, yeah i want i i i copied the quote though because i wanted to read it so his quote was i think it was just a capsule review i don't even think he gave like a full review he said american poet sylvia plath played beautifully by gwyneth paltrow put her kids to bed and killed herself one night in 1963 her marriage to poet ted hughes had ended he screwed around and was more famous than she was that's it one of the fiercest love stories of the last century is reduced to star is born pap which wow this disrespect for lady gaga in 2003, I can't deal with it. What the fuck? <laughs> he says, Paltrow looks glam even in death, which only supports the notion raised by real-life Sylvia Plath's daughter, Frida Hughes, that the movie would be about a Sylvia suicide doll, which, that is, that's harsh. That's fully my problem with the movie, watching it in a contemporary context. I think that, like, much as we're not like, you know what, Peter Travers, he's right. But, like, I I think that's spot on part of the problem with the movie. It kind of fetishizes her as this figure who famously killed herself in a way that's really insensitive both to the artist and to people who have been in similar situations. I... I don't know if it goes much deeper than, as the quote says, Sylvia suicide doll. Um, And, like, here's the thing, though. Like, it does it in this kind of, like, placid, pretty way that, like, based off of the type of movies that were happening in the Oscar race, like, had it been grimmer or darker or, like, more taxing to watch, like, maybe it would have gotten further or something. I mean, like... yeah. Just because, like, I I guess maybe it's the specter of 21 grams that I'm thinking of and how just absolutely, like, shoving your face in, like, the shit that movie is. Yeah. That, like, I don't know. I 
Or maybe it just, like, if the movie had a stronger point of view, period. Right. But, like, yeah, that is very indicative of what the problems of this movie are. Aside from it just being boring. Yeah. Agreed. Boring movie. Glad it didn't get nominated for things. Still love Gwyneth Paltrow, but not in this. Poor Gwyneth. Want to play our IMDb game? Yeah, let's move on to the IMDb game. All right. IMDb game we play every week. We challenge each other to name the four movies that a that IMDb lists for a given actor under their known for section. So I, I ideally it's the movies, it's four movies or TV shows or whatever that these actors are best known for. Except IMDb is a tricky little bitch, isn't it? So it will its algorithm will confound you and delight you and probably frustrate you in equal measure. And that is why the game is fun. So we get. Essentially, two strikes uh, before we get a clue. The clue comes in the form of the years that the movies we haven't gotten were released in. If we keep getting it wrong, it just becomes a cavalcade of hints because that's also fun for us. We tend to avoid movie or actors who are big in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Harry Potter Universe because IMDb clogs they're known for with samey franchise stuff, and that's no fun for anybody. I looked up Elizabeth Olsen just today, and she's got three Marvel movies and then Martha Marcy May Marlene. And it's just not as fun to guess that. Martha so, Marcy May Marlene is great. Love that um, movie. I looked up Michael Gambon because he is in Sylvia. All Harry Sylvia's Potter, right? Neighbor. No, it's actually two Harry Potters. One after he dies. <laughs> Wait. after Oh, after Dumbledore dies? Yeah. Yeah, but Dumbledore's it always was around. Deathly Hallows Part 1. Yeah. Um, and uh, Half-Blood Prince, where he dies. You know what else was on Michael Gambon's? Famously, my nemesis, Gosford Park. Gosford Park, sure. Absolutely. Yep. All right, so why don't you give me to guess first? All right, so I uh, I went the Gwyneth Paltrow co-star route. That is also the attempted suicide route, unfortunately. Mm. Um, we're talking about her uh, brother-lover um, in Royal Tenenbaums, Luke Wilson. Have we not done Luke Wilson before? We have not done Luke Wilson. Okay. Is Royal Tenenbaums one of them? Yes, Royal Tenenbaums is one of them. Okay. I'm wondering if there's any other Wes Anderson for him. Um, is Old School one of them? Old School. All right. Gosh, that was a movie that I enjoyed at the time. With the friends that I was friends with at the time, and we all saw it, and we all had a good laugh. And it's... I still feel culturally on my own planet when people say that they love old school. Oh, it makes me want. It's not good. It fully to shames live in me. A cave it fully forever. shames me that I loved it as much as I did. It I should not have. I was wrong. <laughs> my enjoyment was wrong. So okay, um, I got two Luke Wilsons. His role in Rushmore isn't big enough, I'm going to say. And I don't think people liked or paid enough attention to Darjeeling Limited. Wait, Darjeeling Limited wasn't him. That was Owen. Never mind. Home fries? No, no home fries. Is that two wrong or is that just one wrong? That's just one. Okay. All right. Luke Wilson. What do we got? We've got... Oh, uh, Legally Blonde. No, no Legally Blonde. Shut the fuck up. All right. Uh, 
Star. Okay, so your uh, your years are 1996 and 2006. 2006 is oh wait oh no family stone no family stone what the fuck of that also nope all right these are the two hardest of luke wilson 1996 and 2006 yes was he even known in 96 oh 96 has got to be bottle rocket it is Bottle Rocket, the okay. other Wes Anderson. The other that's Wes on Anderson here. movie. That's on I was there. not saying a word when you were like, maybe there's another Wes Anderson. Yeah, <laughs> there is. It's it's the one that we don't you know claim. It's right. Bottle Rocket. Right. Okay. So oh six. All right. Oh six. Luke Wilson. Is it like? I don't know if I want to ask for hints. I'm trying to think of like there was a very very brief time post Tenenbaums where he was like or probably post Legally Blonde is the more accurate way of mentioning it where he was a romantic kind of oh what year 2006 yeah so it's not uh, Charlie's Angels it is not Charlie's Angels Um, I will give you a small hint this is a cult movie oh it's Idiocracy it is Idiocracy. It's Idiocracy. That's why the year wasn't really going to help you. No, because Idiocracy, it wasn't. wasn't it delayed by like two years? And it and it didn't really even catch on as a thing for another few years after that. It's Idiocracy. No. Okay. Okay. No. All right. That's good. So, Luke Wilson. Yeah. I also went with the Gwyneth Paltrow co-star route. I went to a slightly less good movie than the Royal Tenenbaums, however. I went for her co-star in Country Strong... Yeah. One Mr. Garrett Headland. Garrett Headland, you had to make it as like difficult as possible because Garrett Headland, uh who's the other one? And, like he's interchangeable with a few people. Uh He is probably. not Charlie Hunnam. He is not um Jai Courtney. He is not uh Taylor Kitsch. Yeah. He is Char- he is Garrett Headland. I almost said Charlie Hunnam. <laughs> Oh, man. Garrett Hedlund. Uh, Inside Lewin Davis. No. It's an interesting first opening salvo. Well, it's Coen Brothers, but I guess he's probably like 10th build. Yeah, he's pretty low build Um, in that movie. But like Coen Brothers, man. Come on. Um, Mudbound? Mudbound is one of them. Okay, there's some justice. Um, Jesus. Um, Unbroken. No. All right, so that's two strikes. So your years are 2005, 2010, and 2012. I will say he is either the lead or one of the leads in all of these movies. So it's not like something where he's really small. Okay. Uh, 2010 is Tron Legacy. Sure is. Wow. I love that the year got you Tron Legacy. That's good. Uh, Listen, that's a bit that... Weirdly, that is a key instrumental movie <laughs> in my marriage. Oh, Don't ask why. wow! We like that movie. Um, in your marriage, uh, 2012's on the road. Yeah, good job. 2005, which is fully before he exists. Right, it was a very, very, very early Garrett Hedlund movie. I will say, and this probably won't help you, but it helps me. He shows his butt in that movie, and that is why I remember it fondly. He shows his butt in a lot of movies, though. Not enough of them. None that I know happened in 2005. It um, is fully his third movie. He had two movies in 04. And so he's a baby. 
Yeah, he's a he's a he's a he's a little he's a, he's the young one. I will say his role in this movie is to be the young one. His role is to be the young one. Is it like a sibling movie? Mm-hmm. That's not helping me. You're red um, hot. You are red hot with that. You are not only really? getting warmer. You are you are burning up. I probably just don't know what the movie is. Um, Maybe not. Directed by a Oscar-nominated director, a sort of famously Oscar-nominated director whose nomination was a milestone. Milestone director. Is it a female director? Nope. It's not going to be Lena Wertmuller. Um, <laughs> wait, is it John Singleton? Yeah. The thing about John Singleton is he's tough to remember all of his movies because, like, they never get sold as, like, John Singleton directed this. And it's, like, that's something you find out after the fact. And it's, like, holy shit, John Singleton made this movie. Yeah. Um, <sighs> I will say the, the poster for this movie is there is a certain number of individuals all looking down at the camera with sort of tough guy expressions on their faces. Is it, uh, is it four brothers? It's four brothers. How dare Is it you? about siblings? How dare you make me think about a Mark Wahlberg movie? Okay, because Garrett Hedlund chose his butt in it, as I mentioned. Because Garrett Hedlund chose his butt. He's in the shower. Mark Wahlberg, Tyrese Gibson, Andre Benjamin, Garrett Hedlund, four brothers. Do you remember who plays their mom? Uh, this was a famous thing. I do not remember, though. Fanola Flanagan, who was red yes! hot off of the others at this point. Yeah. This is, movie has a cast. Terrence Howard's in that movie. Shuetel Ejiofor, Taraji P. Henson, Josh Charles, Damn. Sophia Vergara. That's a cast. Barry Sweet. Shabaka Hen- Henley, famous from... Uh, star is born this year anyway good job well done awesome sylvia any last thoughts on sylvia joe no we will probably be the very last thoughts on Sylvia. yeah i i I, i'm glad we chose this for oh three i think it let us it gave us a foot in the door of best actress and i think it really got it it was a chance to talk about a movie that everybody had their eye on at the beginning of the year and ultimately it didn't pay off in any way and that was the I story think of, of all of the movies we will cover including whatever because at this point we still don't know what our uh, reader's choice episode will be i think of all of them this is the one that we can probably learn the most from our cynicism as far as predicting for oscars because it's like this is a lesson we keep learning time and time again yes for biopics that especially don't have unique points of view um that feel like vanity projects i know that that is like a loaded term but yeah i don't know sylvia plath definitely deserves a better movie than this i don't know if sylvia (laughs) plath has been considered all that well right um or all that interestingly and i think it would take a real engagement with her actual work to make a worthwhile movie that serves her i think that's true well put christopher well put so that is our episode if you want more this had oscar buzz you can check out the tumblr at this had oscar you should also follow our twitter account at had underscore oscar underscore buzz chris where can the listeners find you and your stuff 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. I'm also on Letterboxd under the same name. I keep a running list of this had Oscar Buzz titles on there. That includes direct links to episodes and our IMDb game stats. And you can also find me at thefilmexperience.net. Hooray! I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed is spelled in both instances R-E-I-D. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility. Just take a quick break from battling back your husband's poetry groupies and write something sweet about us, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. And more 2003! Yes! Sing us a song tonight